I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. Today, standing on the soil of slavery. When writer and poet Clint Smith went to the Whitney Plantation in southeastern Louisiana, he found a place where the violence of enslavement felt close, where two original slave cabins still stood, where the descendants of those slaves still live on the land around the plantation. And yet the Whitney is more than a relic of America's deepest shame. It is, Mr. Smith writes, a laboratory for historical ambition, an experiment in rewriting what long ago was rewritten. It is a hammer attempting to unbend four centuries of crooked nails. The Whitney is one of the places to which Clint Smith traveled to understand America's historic and contemporary relationship to slavery. And the history of it, he adds, was not peripheral to our founding, it was central to it. Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic and a poet. His book, now out in paperback, is titled How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And he joins us today from Silver Springs, Maryland. Clint Smith, welcome. It's, I've looked forward to this, and it's good to have you on the show. It's so good to be here with you. I want to go back to the Whitney Plantation and go inside with you to one of those original cabins that held enslaved men and women and children. You had an experience of reaching out to touch that cracked wood, and you imagined what it was like when enslaved people sheltered there. And I hope that you could share the texture of that experience with us. Put us there if you can. Yeah, it's, you know, for me, one of the reasons I set out on this journey was because I believe so deeply in the power of putting your body in the place where history happened. And for me, the the greatest example of this, as you mentioned, is um, the original slave cabin, one of the original slave cabins at Whitney Plantation. And I remember standing there and I remember the feeling of the wood uh, sort of moaning under your feet, wood that had been cut from cypress trees that lined the Mississippi River. I remember looking up and hearing the, and seeing the the light sort of slice in through cracks in the wood uh, that were in the roof. And I remember this feeling of thinking about how for so much of my life, the way that I've been told about the barbarity of slavery was through the prism of the sort of spectacle of cruelty, the spectacle of physical violence and barbarism. And to be sure, that is a huge part of it. But I never fully considered family separation as a piece of it that was perhaps the most violent aspect of that institution. And I was writing this book in a moment where um, my wife and I had, you know, we had out, we had two children. Uh, we had a two-year-old and a newborn. And I remember standing there and imagining what it would be like if one day I put my children to bed, I woke up the next day, and my children were gone. And I had no idea where they went. I had no idea who had taken them. I had no idea if I would ever see them again. And you have this moment where you realize that this is the omnipresent threat that millions of enslaved people lived under every single day of their lives, that every single day people woke up and realized that they could be taken away from their husband, their wife, their children, 
their parents, their grandparents, their community, their siblings. And it's, it's a sort of unfathomable emotional rupture and yet was so ubiquitous under slavery. And I, and I think there's something about standing in that space where families lived and held one another and loved one another that made me feel so much more proximate to that idea, to that notion. And I don't know that I would have felt it or experienced it in the same way otherwise. And I think that that's a microcosm of a much larger sense, set of sensibilities that I experienced at all of these different places, where it's I'm, when I put my body in the places where this history transpired, I feel so much more proximate to it. Just to linger for a moment in that cabin with these realizations that you wrote about, you talk about also understanding in a in a very tactile way what it would mean for a child to be born into a slave enslaved family and understand that that child might spend their entire life enslaved or as you've noted might be sent away sold away where their parents would know nothing about where they went and and I think you make note of this that some of many of these children were the product of the rape of the plantation's owner and he is enslaving his own children. Can you talk a bit about the realization of that when you were there? Yeah, and and I went to Whitney Plantation after having visited uh, Monticello Plantation, uh, which many folks will know is uh, the home of Thomas Jefferson, our third president of the United States, one of our founding fathers, uh, considered by many to be the sort of intellectual founding father of this country, or or one of them. And so I very much was putting Monticello and Whitney in conversation with one another in my respective visits. And I was thinking a lot about this after I left Monticello because Jefferson enslaved four of his own children, right? And and one of the reasons I wanted to go to Monticello was because I think it represents the the sort of cognitive dissonance of uh of of America in some sense, which is which is to say that America is a place that is uh you know that is the a space where millions of people across generations have had the opportunity for upward mobility in ways that their ancestors could have never imagined. But it is also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things are the story of America. It's not one over here and one over there. It's that they are both deeply entangled in one another. And Jefferson, I think, is the personification, the sort of embodiment of that cognitive dissonance, which is to say he is someone who uh, wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world and also enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children that he had by an enslaved woman named Sally Hemings. He's someone who wrote in uh, the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and wrote in notes on the state of Virginia that he believed black people were likely inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind, that the slave was incapable of love. The slave was incapable of possessing or sustaining complex emotion in the same way that white counterparts were. And so that was very much top of mind when I went to Whitney because I was thinking about what does it mean? What does it look like for someone to enslave their children. I mean, it's it's a it's a notion that feels fundamentally unfathomable to me, and yet mm-hmm. was again a, another phenomenon that was ubiquitous across slavery. And I think you know one of the strengths of Whitney is that you uh, are constantly encountering 
the the narratives and the stories and the firsthand accounts of enslaved people themselves. They really use the uh, narratives from the Federal Writers Project, um, which is a project that was done between 1936 and 1938 as part of the New Deal, where they collected the stories of over 2,000 formerly enslaved people who were still alive in the late late 1930s. And so these are people who largely were children uh, at the end, toward the end of enslavement. But when you get these firsthand accounts and you, I remember reading a story uh, on, on this, um, in this really haunting exhibit uh, of a woman who was raped by multiple slave owners, um, multiple enslavers over the course of decades and had, I think, if I remember, 15 different children by 15 different different men. And it, it, part of what you recognize is that there were systems put in place in order to ensure that those men, those white men, did not have to take responsibility for those children. So the Virginia Assembly, you know, almost more, more than a century before, created the system of partis sequitur ventrum, which was very different than what their fathers and grandfathers had used in England, which is to say that in England, you took on a child took on the status of their father. In the United States, they made it so that a child took on the status of their mother, which was purposefully done to ensure that if they and when they raped and sexually assaulted uh, a black woman, an enslaved woman, that the children born of that encounter uh, would not be their responsibility in the traditional sense that a child is one's responsibility, but would instead be the enslaved property of um, of whoever that woman, whoever their mother belonged to. Mm. And, and Thomas Jefferson's Monticello would have been, I mean, that law would have uh, presided over Monticello as well. He would Absolutely. have never had to have taken responsibility, right? I have a question for you about Jefferson. And I think you note this, that he was not unaware of his own moral hypocrisy. Hmm. What does that mean, though? What what should that mean, if that's true, about our understanding of Jefferson? I think first and foremost, it means that he was human. Uh, and, and I don't mean that to excuse his actions by any means. Like what he did was horrific and cruel and, and inexcusable. And... Part of what I think is so important to recognize about Jefferson, to recognize about any of our founding fathers, is that they were bril- often brilliant people, but also on a, on a moral level, on an ethical level, they were deeply human, which is to say they were like all of us in the sense that they were morally inconsistent, that they did things, certainly in this case, to a degree that is far more horrific than any of us would, but they did things that they knew were wrong, but continued to do them anyway. And and again, I, I want to be clear that there are gradations to this and, and, and the enslavement of human property exists on one very extreme end of the spectrum. But if you think about our, our own lives, there are things that we do all the time uh, on individual levels that we know are on either a micro sense or a macro sense wrong mm. that we continue to do anyway for all sorts of reasons. People continue to eat meat, even though we are becoming even acutely cognizant of the role factory farming plays and the role that um, 
that how that shapes the climate and environment and the people who work in those factories. People drive cars when, you know, that guzzle gas that we uh, know is bad for the environment. We get on planes, we do. And, and a, this is not a moral judgment because I, I eat meat, I drive cars. What I'm saying is that there are things that we, that humans do that they know are not, that are not always aligned with the values that we hold and espouse, mm. but we do them anyway because they add pleasure or convenience or um, something that we don't want to let go of to our lives. And and Jefferson, you know, he, you can read in his letters, he knew that slavery was wrong. He said that slavery was, you know, to paraphrase, more morally uh, a sort of morally incoherent project, one that it was sort of indefensible for white enslavers um, and was something that made them look far worse than it did people who were enslaved. Um, and he said that this nation and and these men who, who engage in this will be judged. And he continued to own hundreds of enslaved people. And he continued to uh, have sexual relations with a woman who he enslaved in, in, in that power dynamic in which it cannot be understood as anything other than rape and sexual coercion, you know, continue to, to have sex with this person who, when he was, which began when he was 40 and she was a teenager. Um, so again, it's, I think what it does is force us to reckon with that. He was not, and is not this sort of, this myth, uh, this mythological figure that he is some sometimes um, made out to be, or has historically been made out to be, but he is someone who was deeply inconsistent, deeply flawed, and very brilliant, and contributed a lot to the uh, sort of burgeoning American project. And I think our responsibility is to hold all of that together at once. Uh, was Yvonne your guide at Monticello or at the Whitney Plantation? Do you remember? At the Whitney. Okay. Because she tells you something rather searing that happens when white visitors come to the Whitney. They they often ask a question. Can you talk about that question and what that means? Yeah, one of the things that Yvonne brought up... Um, was that when people visit the Whitney and, and, you know, what I learned is that this is a question that comes up um, at almost every plantation that attempts to directly confront uh, the, their relationship to slavery and the relationship of the people who really? once lived there um, to slavery is, you know, the question that come, came up often was, uh, were there any good slave owners? Were there any kind slave owners? Were there any benevolent Slave owners, slaves who slave owners who treated their enslaved property well. Different variations of of a similar question. And the thing that Yvonne says is that it, it's such a fascinating question, and it's and it's even more fascinating with how consistently it comes up from white visitors in these spaces, because she sees it as an attempt to assuage their own sense of guilt over what they are seeing. Um, to hope that mm -hmm. she might tell them that there were good slave owners so that they can imagine that they 
so that they can, when they imagine themselves, they can imagine themselves aligning with a notion of benevolent whiteness that they want her to tell them existed. Um, And what she says is that if somebody kidnapped your child, the first question you ask wouldn't be like, are they a good kidnapper? Were they a kind kidnapper? Were they a benevolent kidnapper? They are someone who kidnapped your child. And so I think she's, she's clear from the space at which the, from which the question is originating and like why it's coming from there. Um, because you'll see the same thing at Monticello. You'll see the same thing at um, different plantations that are attempting to do this work in South Carolina, in Georgia, elsewhere. But this, one of the things that someone at Monticello told me, one of the guides, is that it's hard for some people to come to these places because it fundamentally distorts their notion of what America is. And people's identities are deeply entangled in a story of America that they have been told over the course of their lives that is not always included a more complicated rendering of Jefferson or is not always included, uh, you know, the perspectives of enslaved people so that you have to encounter and engage directly with the violence that these people experienced. And so when you are, when your notion of America has not included the violence that has been enacted on enslaved people or the way that the founding fathers who were, who decorated the walls of your elementary school classroom, um, you realize, you know, that 12 of our first 18 presidents owned enslaved people. It, it not only is asking people to reassess their understanding of American history, you're also asking many people to reassess their understanding of themselves. And that is a hard thing for a lot of people to to accept and to confront. And I think that that is one of the reasons that there is often pushback in these places, because when someone is critical of, of Jefferson, they see it as being critical of, of America, which they see as being critical of themselves, because who they understand themselves to be is so deeply entangled in uh, a sort of two-dimensional rendering of what America is. You're listening to a conversation with Clint Smith. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic and a poet. And we are discussing his book, Now Out in Paperback, that's titled How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Um, I, I want to talk about that that idea of historical blindness that you're getting to here, because I think you're writing about the reality of it, where it intersects with identity and the danger of it, and what it means to a democracy when its citizens either never learn, aren't curious enough, aren't accepting of the truth of its history. And it seems to me that there are a lot of contemporary examples of that. So I'd like you to put that in some more modern context, when you see things unfold like January 6th and some of the other um, political events that we're seeing, how does it relate to the experiences that you had in researching the book and the way you're thinking about America's history of slavery? Yeah, I think what becomes clear is that, you know, we're seeing in real time over the last two years, we've seen in real time 
the way that an event that we all witnessed, that we all saw transpire on television, um, can be misrepresented, can be distorted, that we can be gaslit into uh, and being t- be told by people that what we saw is not what we saw, that the things we heard people say are not what they actually said or what they meant. And this is just a, a different manifestation of, of a sort of lost cause ideology that existed at the end of the Civil War. And, you know, for those who aren't familiar, the lost cause is uh, a group, uh, a set of ideas um, that was propagated by former Confederates and, and included within them is this idea that the Civil War was not actually fought over slavery, um, that in slavery wasn't even that bad in the first place. There was largely a civilizing and benevolent institution. Um, and that the war was one of Northern aggression. Um, and the South was simply attempting to protect itself, um, to protect its sovereignty, to protect its rights, its tradition. And, you know, it's really fascinating because this, this, these sort of political sensibilities, these historical sensibilities, this ideology continues to uh, manifest itself today. And, you know, one, it's fascinating because it's in the same way that looking, you watching, you watch a video of January 6th and you see for yourself what happened. And then somebody tells you that that's not what happened can make you is a sort of Orwellian experience. That's what Mm -hmm. happened in 1865. Right. And that's what happened in the years, uh, in the years following, you know, when somebody says the civil war and secession weren't about slavery, all you have to do is look up the declarations of Confederate secession where the states said it for themselves. A state like Mississippi in 1861 said, quote, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. Right. So they're not vague about why they're seceding from the union. They're quite clear about it. They're quite, quite clear about why the Civil War is about to be fought. You can look at a plethora of contemporaneous documents from that time. And, and there is no hiding what was uh, the rationale for why the South wanted to secede and create um, create the Confederacy. And yet, even though we have all these primary sources, even though we have all these contemporaneous documents, there are still those who, both in the late 19th century and today, reject the idea that uh, slavery had anything to do with the Civil War. Um, and, you know, one of the places that I went in the book was the Blanford Cemetery, uh, which is one of the largest Confederate mm-hmm. cemeteries in the country where the remains of 30,000 Confederate soldiers are buried. And I spent the day with members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans and United Daughters of the Confederacy who who themselves believed this and who themselves carried these ideas. And, and so it was fascinating to watch it, um, to watch the way that those ideas have carried on in, in our contemporary lives. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that that day you spent at Blandford because you meet uh, a woman named Martha and you have kind of a it sounds like a bit of a roaming conversation with Martha Martha as you walk through the cemetery and she I, I just I'll read this paragraph uh from the book about that Martha started talking to me about how preservation was different from celebration an idea that made sense to me in the abstract I asked Martha for her opinion of the Confederate monuments in Richmond that had gotten so much attention since the 2017 white nationalist rally in Charlottesville. She says, I would like to see the monuments staying up, but with context, 
Because again, I understand where people are coming from, but if we can't have them where they are, we've got to have them somewhere. So we know that in December, Richmond, Virginia pulled down the last city-owned statue that glorified the Confederacy, and Mayor LeVar Stoney said, this is the last stand for the last cause in our city. Tell me what you think about what, Ma- what Mayor Stoney said and then what Martha was, was expressing to you. You know, I think that broadly, people of good faith can have different ideas of what should be done to certain monuments, um, what should whether they should be taken down, whether they should be left up, whether there, a plaque should be placed, whether they should be melted and turned into something else. I think broadly that is fine, and that's a debate that's happening in, in my hometown in New Orleans. Um, you know, what should be done with st- statues of Andrew Jackson? What should be done with statues of... Um, you know, presidents who were also enslavers and also served as the, you know, who had policies that were the catalyst to indigenous uh, genocide and removal. And I think that those questions and those debates should, should happen in the context of Confederate monuments specifically, right? Not, not of Jefferson or not of Jackson or not of Polk or not of uh, some of these other folks. For me, I, I don't, think there is any justification for continuing to have statues lifted up in public spaces, paid for by taxpayer dollars, maintained by taxpayer dollars, that were created to honor and venerate and celebrate people who led an army that fought a war predicated, large, singularly predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery, of maintaining and expanding a, a sort of violence that is difficult to, it, that is in, in its own unique way without precedent. Um, and so I, as someone who watched the Confederate monuments come down in my hometown in New Orleans and, you know, watching those monuments come down was the the catalyst for me writing this book and exploring these questions. I, if you want to have a statue of Robert E. Lee in your backyard, in your living room, that is your business and that is fine. It's your private property. You can build whatever sort of statue you want. But for what's in front of courthouses, what is in traffic circles, what is in public parks. Uh, That's sort of, for me, the low-hanging fruit of this debate. And to be clear, you know, removing symbols and iconography is deeply important. Um, And it is not in and of itself the panacea. Removing a statue of Robert E. Lee is not going to erase the racial wealth gap. Removing a statue of Stonewall Jackson is not going to lead to uh, equal funding in schools. But all of these things are connected because the symbols and iconography shape the stories that communities tell. And those stories in different communities shape the public policy that people create. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. And so there is a relationship between these things, 
because we have to be able to tell a different story about our history, a different story about different uh, specific communities' histories in order to understand what needs to be done in, in, a, in the context of material resources to make amends for a history of violence that different members of, of a city, a state, or a country uh, have experienced. So I, I think it's great to see those monuments um, all come down in Richmond. And I think that that is just the beginning uh, of the work that needs to be done. I read the piece that you wrote about this in The Atlantic. I think it published in June. And I just wanted to pull out a couple of sentences here to kind of move us to a couple of my other questions. You write, for so many of them, the people that believe in the lost cause or they find this a kind of a romantic uh, era of history. For so many of them, history isn't the story of what actually happened. It's just the story they want to believe. It's not a public story we all share, but an intimate one, passed down like an heirloom that shapes their sense of who they are. And you know, Clint, I watch and listen to these, let's say, debates about textbooks, you know, where governors are leading the charge against um, erasing the truth of history from textbooks. And it feels so, well, it feels despairing because you know that if that is taken out of textbooks and the true history with all of its flaws and warts and ability to still admire and love America is taken out, um, you know, these are, these are young people who are growing into adults who might never learn or accept that history. And then, then it becomes even more of a, of a barrier to, you know, reckoning their own identity with the truth of America. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm, I do. I do. And, and, you know, I think that's the unfortunate part of the, the moment we find ourselves in, uh, is that I, you know, we have state legislatures that are attempting to explicitly prevent teachers from teaching the very history right. that explains why our society looks the way that it does today. You know, you have school boards right. who are attempting to prevent, t you know, librarians from sharing books that provide historical accounts and perspectives that students might not otherwise encounter. And I really can't overstate how important it is for young people to understand, to, re to receive the education and to read the books and to hear the stories that help them more fully understand the totality of the country they live in. I remember growing up in New Orleans as a kid and being inundated, and this is New Orleans in the 1990s, and being inundated with these messages about all the things that were wrong with black people, right? But the, that the crime and the, and the violence and the poverty and the school inequality and the health disparities, that all of it was the fault of black people. And I was inundated with this message, you know, from politicians, from the media. And if a young person is singularly inundated with messages that are telling them that the reason their community experiences so many of these disparities and inequalities is because of things that they are responsible for, that they have done wrong, that it is their fault. And you don't have, no one is giving you the language or the toolkit or the historical or sociological context with which to push back against that. The most logical but insidious 
uh, endpoint of that is that you will begin to internalize some of those messages and you will. And I remember, be, you know, being this kid and being like, I know that what I'm hearing is wrong, but I don't know how to say it's wrong. I didn't have the, the again, that toolkit. And it wasn't until much later in my life where I read books that helped give me a, a, a deeper understanding of the history of America, of the history of New Orleans, that helped ground me in the sort of sociological realities that shaped what inequality looks like today, that helped me understand the decades of public policy decisions that specifically and systematically created the, the landscape of inequality we see today, that I felt that I felt like I was more able to fully look at my city, my state, my country and understand it with clearer eyes that I was able to look around and understand that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not singularly because of the people in those communities, but because of what has been done to those communities or taken away from those communities generation after generation after generation. And I can't express how liberating it was, how freeing it was, how emancipatory it was as a young person to get, have access to that information and to know that so much of the story I had been told was a lie and to be able to identify that lie. It was so, there was so much agency that had been restored to my sense of self. Um, And so, you know, I, I think all the time about this 1964 essay published by James Baldwin called a talk to teachers. And in it, you know, he says a lot of brilliant, remarkable things, but one of the things that he says that I think about all the time is he says the the role of the teacher is to help the black child understand that even though the world tells them they are criminal, the role of the teacher is to help that black child understand that it is not the child who is criminal. It is the society and the history that created the circumstances that that child is forced to grow up in that is the criminal. And for many of us, that's intuitive, but I think we can forget how un- how it's not necessarily intuitive for many young people, for many people, for many Americans. And so I think all the time about how different our sense of ourselves and our, and who we are in relationship to this country would be if collectively we all had the same set of information to understand holistically from a range of different perspectives how American history has shaped where we are today. So I grew up in Western New York, and your chapter on New York City held some pretty uncomfortable truths for me, because I do remember learning that the North was the good guys in the Civil War. And I think you have a guide who dismisses that (laughs) out of hand. And she says at one point, the United States of America's economy was founded on the currency of selling human livestock. I mean, she is... She's exploding. I I, I think something that is very dear to the identity of a lot of people who grew up in the northern United States, even now, even, you know, more than a century after the Civil War. Why do you think it's important that this be a collective understanding and acceptance and to, to a degree responsibility, accountability? for the whole country and that nobody really gets off from this. Yeah. I think it's so important for us to disabuse ourselves of the idea that there was anywhere in the country that slavery didn't touch, um, whether it be directly 
uh, or or indirectly or economically, financially, socially. In New York, you know, New York, similarly, I didn't have a lot of context to understand the history of slavery in New York. I, I read some books, specifically the work of the historian um, Leslie Harris, that gave me a little bit of insight into understanding that like, oh, there's, this was there's something here that I hadn't been taught. But, you know, the more you dig into it, the more you realize that at one point, New York was the second largest slave port in the country, second to only Charleston, South Carolina, where 40% of uh, enslaved people were were brought um, over the course of the transatlantic slave trade. You realize that in 1865 or in 1861, uh, on the brink of the Civil War, the mayor of New York City, Fernando Wood, uh, advocated that New York secede from the Union alongside with South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, all these different Southern states, because New York's political, economic, and social infrastructure was so deeply entangled in the slaveocracy of the South. You know, this is the the mayor of the city saying we should secede from the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, That the Statue of Liberty, you know, this thing that, uh, you know, I always understood was was there as a symbol of America welcoming um, being a nation of immigrants, welcoming those from um, different places mm-hmm. through, through Ellis Island, uh, that it represented the the promise of, of American democracy, that it was actually originally conceived of uh, by Edouard de Laboulaye, who's a, a, a French scholar um, and politician, as a gift to the United States to celebrate the end of enslavement. So much to the point where the original design of the Statue of Liberty before it was built did not include uh, a tablet in her hand, um, but included a set of uh, broken chains in her hand. And ultimately, there was so much pushback mm. to the idea, you know, this is wow. fresh after the, the Civil War, so half the country was, um, you know, uh, sort of licking their wounds. There was a lot of pushback to the idea that there should be this massive symbol, you know, at, which at that point would have been the largest construction in the United States that that should exist um, as in that way and be that sort of symbol. And so the they changed the design. And now it, you, the Lady Liberty holds a torch and holds uh, the, the tablet. And then, but the interesting thing is that the, uh, the, the chains weren't completely removed. They were placed near her feet. And if you look closely, they're sort of snaking around her feet under the robe. But you can only see it from an aerial view. So it's this, you know, it's really interesting sort of metaphorical moment where I was standing on uh, Liberty Island, standing next to this Statue of Liberty, which is enormous in ways that I I hadn't necessarily always understood. And you're standing next to it. You're standing next to the pedestal, but you can't see above the pedestal because the pedestal is so large. And I didn't realize until I saw photos taken from a helicopter that right next to me were you know, these, these chains that had once been meant to be for her hand that were once meant for her hands mm. um, now snaking around her feet. And I, and I thought it was this fascinating sort of metaphor for how the history of slavery is sometimes right next to us, even when we can't see it. Um, and so, so there's so much of that history in New York, so many of the built wall street, um, lower Manhattan. I mean, so much of that city has such a profound relationship to the history of slavery, um, even if it's not always uh, pointed out to us in, in, in a direct way. 
Um, you write of wrestling with your own questions of why enslaved people submitted and why they didn't escape or rebel like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman did. Will you talk a little bit about your real, the realization that you came to about that? And I guess some of the questions that you asked yourself as you were, as you were trying to figure this out. Yeah. You know, I, that felt like a really important part to include for a lot of reasons, but in part, because I, I don't, my intention with the book and those who've read the book, I, I think know this is not, I don't enter this project as someone who uh, presents themselves as presents themselves as having always been an expert on the history of slavery in the United States. In fact, I enter it as, uh, you know, by pretty explicitly saying there was a moment in 2017, watching these Confederate statues come down that I realized that I actually didn't understand the history of slavery in this country in a in a way that I thought was commensurate with the impact and legacy that it's had on this country, on my state of Louisiana, on my city, hometown of New Orleans. And so the book is is in and is in and of itself an effort to go on this both physical and intellectual journey to understand this history that is deeply embedded in the United States and deeply embedded within my lineage. I am the descendant of enslaved people. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved, right? And so it felt so important for me to address that. And as, and as part of that, part of what I wanted to do throughout the process was be honest about my own misconceptions around slavery and to say that as a child, you know, I remember sitting at my school in New Orleans and, you know, they would, uh, to the extent that we were taught about slavery, they would, they would bring it up and they would talk about uh, the institution. And I remember so many of us uh, in our classroom would be like, that would never happen to us. We would never let somebody uh, like keep us enslaved. Like we would, you know, Frederick Douglass ran away. Harriet Tubman ran away. Like, why didn't everybody else run away? Right. In, in, you know, this is the way that the, the mind of a child works. You're like, well, we read the story of this person. We read the story of this person. Why couldn't these other people run away to the same extent? And then, you know, you learn more about this history and you realize how much more nuanced and complex it is. And, and there's so many layers, you know, so first off, it's not a coincidence that the two most famous enslaved people in American history, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, both were enslaved in Maryland, which is a border state which has a level of proximity to the North, to uh, places where someone could escape and ostensibly find freedom. That's very different than if you were in the Deep South, if you were in Louisiana, South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. And so the the very one's very proximity, if, sort of geographic proximity to freedom shaped their ability to escape or not. Secondly, and this is, again, the way that having a family has recalibrated my understanding of this institution as well, is that even if you were, let's say, even if you were in Louisiana and you were someone who had the physical capacity to escape, one, all of the literature will tell you, all the scholarship will tell you that if you try to escape with a child, you will almost certainly be caught because a child cannot, does not have the physical capacity to do what is necessary in order to sustain an elongated escape effort. People who tried to escape with their children were almost always caught uh, and suffered mightily for it, if not having been killed. So then you have people who are saying, okay, well, I can, if I escape with my child, it's a, it's a death sentence, or I can try to escape on my own, but then I'm leaving my family behind. And so you have people mm -hmm. who are making a decision between 
trying to escape and find freedom, but having to reckon with the idea that their freedom would be without the people they love. And so many, you know, so, so you have to ask a real question, like, is, is the idea of freedom worth it if you cannot share it with the people who mean most to you, more to you than anything else in the world? And this is a very real difficult calculation that many enslaved people are making all the time, right? Like, And so many people find other ways to resist the institution that don't include running away, but also recognize that they want to be with the people they love. And if you can't run away with your wife and your child or your parents, uh, part of what that means is that you you attempt to make the most meaningful life that you can with the people you love in the context of this horrific institution. And so it, the story is just so much more complex than that. And even if you do decide to run away, even if all of those calculations and you decide to run away, you have to accept that if you run away, even if you are successful and you make it to Ohio, New York, New Canada, that the people you love who you have left behind will likely be the ones who are punished for your actions. And so it's not even thinking about, will I make it safely? It's an understanding that if even if you make it safe, safely, the people there will be people who are punished for your actions to send a message to everyone else on that plantation um, that you have to accept. So there are just so many different layers to that, to the notion of like, why didn't slaves just escape um, that people have to hold? And that's I certainly didn't, you know, a, a level of complexity that I certainly didn't have as a you know, 12 year old learning about this for the first time. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Clint Smith about his new book, now in paperback, titled How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. I want to ask you about the essay that you wrote for The Atlantic in October about being in an airport and overhearing an argument between two women and one of them hurled a, a racial epithet at a at the other woman who was black. And your essay explores what it's like to witness that. I've pulled out a few sentences from the essay, but I wondered if you would just tell us a little bit about being there and seeing this develop and what you saw. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm someone um Obviously, you know, we've been having this conversation about the book who thinks a lot about the historical, structural, and systemic manifestations of racism. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, and I, and I think what's happened over the last several years is that we, as a country, have begun having a more honest, robust, and detailed conversation about systemic racism and understanding that racism is not just an interpersonal phenomenon where somebody hurls a racial slur. But it is also something that's embedded within our systems, within our policy, within our judiciary, within our legislatures um, that we have to take seriously. I think inadvertently, sometimes what can happen is that people forget about the interpersonal piece of racism that and, and that it still exists. And I think that I for me, that was a moment, you know, I was in this on the, getting off of this plane in Charlotte and you know, these two women were having this argument and it continued to get heated uh, as they left the plane. And then the white woman turned around and, and called the black woman the N-word. And I was standing right behind her. And I was kind of shocked by what happened in my body as I heard that. Um, it, had, 
It had been a long time since I heard that word used with such venom and used in that specific context uh, that was intended and meant to hurt and be painful. Um, mm-hmm. In it, I felt the, the, the sense of dread spread across my body um, and stay in my body. Uh, for, for some time after that. And it was for me, you know, I, I the black woman, I, ultimately this woman, you know, re- realized that people had seen her and heard her and she rushed off into the crowd before anybody could, um, any of the, uh, flight attendants or people working at the, the desk of the airlines could, um, could get her information or see her and, and, um, and attempt to, to prevent her from, you know, leaving without there being any consequences. Um, and the woman and I had a conversation and, you know, I wanted to make sure she was okay. And, and, she, you know, I think we were both a little bit, we were both shaken up. We were also angry. We were also, um, sort of unsurprised, but, but still surprised if that makes sense. Um, and, and it was just this reminder that that part of it still exists and of what it can do to your body. Um, that it is sometimes people can mock the idea that like things that aren't physical violence, um, can be, can constitute as violence, but that is, I think it's important to name that what that woman did was a specific sort of violence that harms the, the physiology of not only the person she directed it at, but you know, the, that I, that I experienced the sort of shrapnel of it, um, and was, was harmed by that, by that too. And so it was just an important moment for me to remember that that is a microcosm of, of a range of, you know, interpersonal, interpersonally racist actions that black people are subject to, um, all the time, sometimes in, in ways that are as direct as that, um, but more often in ways that are uh, that are more subtle. Um, so these sentences from the essay for for listeners who haven't read it, for hours after, I felt the impact of that woman's word in my body. I couldn't shake it. This too was revealing, although the venom of her voice had not been oriented directly at me. I experienced the debris of her language. I felt it quite literally in and under my skin. I hear what you're saying also about the debris, but the other thing I came away from that essay with was how close to the surface that kind of transgressive, violent language is. Mm. I I mean, an argument on a plane, I, I, I just that that is the go-to in, you know, in a situation where clearly these women are both angry is, is also just shocking and, and probably closer to the surface than I think many white, we white Americans um, probably understand. Yeah. And I, I thought about that as well. It's just this idea that this was not something that it's as, it's as you say, like this was something near the surface, right? This was not something that, uh, for me, it was like, Oh, how many other times 
has this woman used this word? And and even right, less, right. what's more interesting or more unsettling to think about is like if that if if that moment and how quickly she was to uh, to wield that word as a weapon was representative of her sensibilities. Like, what are the other ways that those that the beliefs that animate her use of that word show up in in everyday life uh, for her otherwise? Like, does she work somewhere where those ideas and ideologies and sensibilities will impact, will harmfully impact black people? Is she a teacher? It, uh, does she teach black children? Does she, uh, is she someone who works in proximity to black people trying to get loans from a bank? Is she, I mean, it could be anything. But it just was a reminder that like, oh, this is a specific manifestation of that. But what's also scary are the ways that she can, that those ideas that were so close to the surface for her mm-hmm. might be wielded in ways that uh, that are harmful in those structural and systemic ways that we've alluded to. Hmm. One last question about how the word is passed. I wondered if there was a a book, a novel, a nonfiction account that ended up being particularly meaningful in the way you conceive the book. You, you have mentioned James Baldwin in the context of something else that we were talking about, but any other writer's work that really shaped the way you thought about how the book would come together? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for me, the, the, the pinnacle, um, uh, the, the, the book that exists at the zenith of narrative nonfiction writing is Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns. Um, Mm. you know, uh, it's a classic of the genre. I mean, I think it's, it's sort of wild to think that it came out over 10 years ago now, um, but it is a store for those who aren't familiar. Um, you should go order it and read it immediately. Um, but it is the story of, uh, three different people, uh, and their journey during the great migration. Um, and it is the most remarkable example of a, a nonfiction book that is written and feels like a novel. Uh, and, and obviously our subject, you know, that book is not about slavery. It's about a different period of black American life. Um, but I think that Isabel and I's books are very much in conversation with one another. And, and it provided a, a model of what it looks like to, to tell an, a story in the form of a narrative um, about what, uh, about a period of history. Um, that can sometimes be reduced to dates and facts and things that um, feel less human. And ultimately, these are the stories of of human beings. Um, and human beings are drawn to stories of ourselves, of others. And so I just wanted to try to use the information I, I received and the books that I read and the people I spoke to and the places I visit to to try to put together a story of how slavery has shaped our country um, and how our uh, different memories and understandings of what slavery was continues to shape um, our lives today. The book we've been talking about is titled How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. 
Clint, thank you very much. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. 